Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Jim, we're sat in a freezing cold room here. Uh, the temperature has dropped. I'm wearing a big coat. Um, winter has really uh, hit us now. Um, have you had a good week? Have you been surviving the cold? Uh, the, the highlight of my week occurred yesterday when my car successfully passed its MOT test. Ah, congratulations. Yes, I, I, mean, I know that probably sounds trivial, but I, I, I think I must have a deep-seated fear of failure because I was really quite nervous when I arrived and then when I eventually drove out of the test centre I found myself clenching my fist in triumph I mean there's enough in that story to keep a psychologist going for a few sessions And did you play a celebratory tune at full <laughs> blast? What did you go for? <laughs> was it a jazz a jazz trumpet? Yes, yes. Or? No, no, it wasn't It wasn't. It was Bruckner 7 I think okay. was, was played at considerable volume I have no idea what that is but I imagine, Jim if you had a Spotify wrapped have you heard of Spotify wrapped? No. Basically on Spotify, everyone is is sharing their most played tracks this year. The the songs and the albums that they have played most throughout twenty twenty three. If you had a Spotify wrapped, what would be your most played track or album? Uh, you see, Bruckner Seven is sort of the Lincoln Park of, okay. of classical okay. music. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. <laughs> and with that feature, would that be right? Oh, up yes, there? it would. Yes. Okay. Yes. Anything that's loud and noisy. Probably a lot of Rachmaninoff as well. Okay. I, would, I would play a lot of that. I would encourage all our listeners to, to look up these, um, <laughs> the, the, these artists, these composers. I am not familiar with them. But if you want to know what Jim's Spotify rap looks like, there's a couple of names for you. Anyway, Jim, we've called this season Battleground because the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, have been attacked in recent centuries by critical scholars. Uh, And these are people who argue that the Gospels don't contain an accurate record of what Jesus said and did. Uh, And so in this episode, we're going to think particularly about what Jesus said. Do the Gospels record Jesus's actual words accurately? Or do the words attributed to him really come from the gospel writers themselves? Yes, the the battle in this episode is between those who say that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John recorded Jesus' actual words and those who say that we only get the the gist of Jesus' sayings in the gospels. Uh, If you were feeling pretentious, Ollie, which of course we often do, (laughs) we would use two Latin terms to describe those two positions, ipsissima verba and ipsissima vox. The actual words of Jesus or the voice of Jesus. Okay, I may have to practice the pronunciation on these, Jim, but I am very much feeling pretentious, so I think uh, maybe <laughs> I'll give those a try later in the episode when my, my confidence is built up. Uh, the interesting thing about this controversy is that many of those who argue that the Gospels only record the gist of what Jesus said uh, are actually evangelicals. Uh, why do so many evangelical scholars think that we don't have access to Jesus' actual words? Well, last week we talked about a radical group of critical scholars called the Jesus Seminary. You know, they're the people, if you remember, who published that color-coded version of the Gospels where each color represented the group's confidence that Jesus had actually said what is recorded in the four Gospels. And they arrived at the bizarre conclusion that less than 20% of the Lord's sayings are genuine. Now, as we discussed last week, there are excellent reasons why the Jesus Seminary can be laughed out of court. But there was a period of time when evangelical scholars felt under real pressure, and some of them thought that falling back to the position that the Gospels only give us the gist of Jesus' words would neutralize the attack from critical scholarship. Now, I think that was a mistake myself, but I I can understand the pressure they were under for a few years. It might be helpful to take an example here then, Jim. Uh, The first three Gospels all record an incident when Peter declares Jesus to be the Christ of God, the Son of the living God. 
but he makes that statement in response to a question that Jesus asks. But the question in each of the Gospels is subtly different. Matthew says that Jesus asks, who do people say the Son of Man is? In Mark's account, Jesus asks, who do people say I am? And according to Luke, Jesus' question is, who do the crowds say I am? Critical scholars seize upon small differences like this and use them to argue that the words of Jesus have been made up by the early church. So some evangelicals have chosen to defend the Gospels by saying, don't worry about the exact wording. The gist of the question is the same in each account. Maybe the Lord was speaking in Aramaic and something got lost in translation or each author had a particular literary style. But it doesn't matter because the gist of Jesus' words is the same. Well, it's certainly a defense, but it comes at a cost. And that example is actually very revealing because, of course, in one sense, there is some summarizing going on. Um, The conversation, as uh, we read it, would have lasted for about 30 seconds, but obviously it would have lasted much longer in, in reality. And there's evidence from within each gospel that Jesus repeats his phrasing at times. So in the context of an extended question and answer session, I think it's entirely probable that the Lord is being quoted exactly, but not exhaustively, by each gospel writer. Uh, anyway, we're probably getting ahead of ourselves here. I, I, I think what we need to do, Ollie, here is give those who adopt the gist of Jesus' words position a fair hearing. Okay, so there are four main arguments put forward by those who deny that we have access to Jesus' exact words. First, Jesus preached in Aramaic, while we have his words in Greek. Second, the sermons preached by Jesus that are recorded in Scripture are clearly summaries. We can read the Sermon on the Mount in a few minutes, but it probably lasted for at least an hour. The third argument is that the Gospel writers were following Greco-Roman standards for historians, and according to those standards, it was acceptable to give the gist of a historical figure's speeches. Uh, And finally, those who take this position will point out that there seems to be a big difference in how Jesus speaks in John's Gospel than how he speaks in the first three. Yeah, the, the stylistic differences between John's gospel and the other three is an important point. But if you don't mind, let's leave that to the end of this discussion, okay? And f- focus for now on your first three arguments. Now, the first one is very weak. Yes, the Lord often preached in Aramaic, and the gospels were written in Greek. But we're reading the Bible in English. Translation from one language, if it is done well, has really no bearing on this issue at all. If I watch Vladimir Putin on TV and read the subtitles, I have access to his actual words. It's not something I do, but uh, theoretically. (laughs) And there's no doubt that a lot of the Lord's teaching has been condensed for the reader. I mean, John finishes his gospel with the statement that Jesus did many things that he didn't record. He says, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. But we're being offered a false dichotomy here. Someone can condense a sermon, but it can be done in such a way that it still retains the speaker's original words. There may be some grammatical smoothing, of course, but the summary can still use sentences that were originally spoken by the speaker. There's a famous theologian from the past called B.B. Warfield, and he once said this, It lies in the nature of the case that two accounts of a conversation which agree as to the substance of what was said, but differ slightly in the details reported, are reporting different fragments of the conversation, selected according to the judgment of each writer as the best vehicles of its substance. If our listeners need to to play that quote back at a slower <laughs> speed, do now take the time to do so. Um, 
But you, you've dealt with the translation argument and the summarization argument there, Jim. But what about the idea that the gospel writers were following Greco-Roman literary conventions? Yeah, this is this is often said that ancient writers, you know, didn't use quotation marks. And it is true that about four hundred years before Christ was born, there was this Greek historian called Thucydides, and he said that it was perfectly okay for historians to just record the gist of a speech. Now. Those who advocate for the voice of Jesus approach love Thucydides, okay? They all quote the same paragraph. But there's a couple of obvious points to be made in response. First of all, there isn't a shred of evidence that the gospel writers knew about or cared a hoot about the views of a Greek general who lived 400 years before they were born. And secondly, Jewish historians went out of their way to rubbish the free and easy methods of Greek and Roman historians. So uh, the guy Josephus um, cites the the careful way that Jewish historians preserved genealogical records uh, as evidence of their greater commitment to accuracy. And he puts that commitment down to their belief that their histories were directly inspired by God. So Jewish historians were very different from the Greco-Roman ones, okay? There's a modern scholar called Berger uh, Gerhardsen who's done a lot of research into the unique accuracy of Jewish historians. And he says... I hope this quote will be more understandable than B.B. <laughs> Warfield's, but I will try yes, it. It's, it's trouble. It's after, after the 18th century, nobody can handle more than one subclause in a sentence. That's true, that's true. Yeah, uh, but anyway, this guy says, the art of reproducing another person's statements in one's own words and of abstracting points of view and ideas from someone's words was carried to considerable lengths in the Hellenized West. But the art wasn't practiced in ancient Israel. A person's views were conveyed in his own words. Authentic statements contained the authority and the power of the one who uttered them. He said, this we know from the Old Testament. I think that is a really powerful point. So I have to say that none of the arguments against the recording of Jesus' actual words stand up to scrutiny. The translation argument is irrelevant. The summarization argument doesn't affect the issue. And it's simply wrong to apply historical conventions argument to Jewish writers. Some of our listeners might be wondering if this issue is really a big deal. Why does it matter so much, Jim? Well, there are two answers to that question, but they both really come down to the question that Satan asked in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? So here's my first argument. The scholars who go along with uh, Ipsissima Vox force us to accept twisted interpretations of Scripture. And I'm going to give you an example here. There's another scholar called Daryl Bock, and he's an evangelical, but he is a big advocate for the idea that the Gospels only give us the gist of what Jesus said. And in one of his books, he talks about uh, the incident where Jesus is baptized. Okay, you remember that when Jesus is being baptized, God the Father speaks from heaven. And Bach points out that the gospel writers all record the voice from heaven as saying different things. Mark and Luke record it as a statement made directly to Jesus. The Father says, you are my beloved son. But Matthew records it as a third person remark. This is my beloved son. Aha, says Bach. Well, I don't know if he says aha, but you know what I mean. Uh, I can imagine him saying that. I think he said that. (laughs) He says, Mark and Luke recorded the actual remark, but Matthew has given us the general report of its significance. Now, think what that evangelical scholar is saying. He's arguing that God the Father never actually said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Matthew, apparently, is giving us the general gist of what was said. But that would mean that Matthew changed the words of God and turned a private conversation within the Trinity into public utterance. Now, that alters the meaning of the entire event. The actual words 
of the Father as recorded by Matthew are crucial to our understanding of the Lord's baptism. Jesus had quietly taken his place in the queue of sinners waiting to be baptised. He made no attempt to vindicate himself or to clarify that he was sinless. He relied on his Father and on the Holy Spirit to vindicate his sinless character. So if the actual words were only the private ones spoken by the Father to Jesus, then he wasn't vindicated. Exactly. I mean, this is really serious stuff. It makes much more sense that God the Father speaks to his Son, as recorded in Mark and Luke, and then gives his public vindication, as recorded by Matthew. You said that there were two main reasons why the Ipsissima Vox position is dangerous. What's the second one? One of the most common questions we get asked by young Christians is about the Bible itself. How can an intelligent person arrive at the conclusion that these 66 books are inspired by God and that they're free from error? Do we just have to accept that as a sort of brute fact? And and you at least, Ollie, know exactly what what I say when that question is asked. I always set out a simple three-step argument. Step one, well, it says that the gospel records give us an accurate record of what Jesus said and did. Step two, we encounter Jesus Christ and we form the judgment that he is the Christ of God, the Son of the living God. This is the moment of conversion. And then step three, we treat Scripture the way Christ treated Scripture, as the inspired Word of God. Now, that is a straightforward argument, which shows the rationality of believing in the inspiration of Scripture. But notice that the entire scheme, the whole argument, rests on the idea that the Gospels give us an accurate record of what Jesus said and did. Now, if Daryl Bock and his fellow travellers are right, then the Gospels only give me access to what Matthew, Mark, Luke and John thought about Jesus. Now, of course, Bach would say uh, that those four men were inspired by God to write the truth. But that argument collapses because the doctrine of inspiration relies on having access to Jesus himself. Once Jesus becomes opaque, once he gets lost behind the personalities of the gospel writers, then we lose the rational basis for believing the Bible to be inspired in the first place. And so Satan's question whispers once more in our ears, did God really say? I want to ask you a question about John's gospel in a minute, but can you just sum up what position you think we should take on the Ipsissima Vox. I seem to be quoting an awful lot of people today, but I'm going to quote um, a theologian, a female theologian called Kelly Osborne. Uh, I think she summed it up very well. Um, she says, when the words spoken by Jesus are similar but not identical between Luke and Matthew, the assumption should not be that one is more authentic than the other, but that the Lord reiterated the same idea in a similar but not identical manner. Did that quote make sense? That was extremely clear. <laughs> Good. Well, that's one out of three. <laughs> <laughs> the other two I'm going to have to go back to. I'll be honest. So the way I would put it is this. I think we can accept that the gospel writers condensed some of the Lord's teaching, but that process still allows us to read the actual words that Jesus spoke. I mean, I wouldn't object personally to the idea that some grammatical smoothing of telescoped sentences took place, but I'd be very wary of going any further than that. You have to remember that the apostles were really careful to distinguish between their own ideas and the Lord's. Paul explicitly distinguishes between his own judgments and words he received from the Lord. Or think how highly Peter regarded the Lord's speech. You have the words of eternal life, he said. Critical scholars would suggest that the actual words could not survive in people's memories for long enough to be recorded accurately. But as we said last week, it's quite possible that members of the audience took notes on wax-coated tablets while Jesus was speaking. And Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would help the apostles to remember his words. He says in John 16, But the Helper, 
the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Exactly. And and remember, the oral tradition is nowhere near as important as, as critical scholars suggest, because it's only their rejection of the supernatural that argues against the dating of the Synoptic Gospels uh, to the AD 50s. That point provides me with a neat segue into the question of John's Gospel. Maybe the strongest argument for Ipsissima Vox is that the Lord Jesus sounds different in John's Gospel than he does in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Is that accurate? Well, it's a commonly held view. In the first three Gospels, Jesus often speaks in parables. But there are really no parables in John's Gospel. He also speaks a lot about the kingdom in the Synoptics, but hardly mentions it in John. Then people would say there is a style difference. Think of all those, you know, those complex, difficult arguments he has with the Pharisees and the scribes in John's, uh, you know, chapter 5, 6, 8, and 10. Or think of his self-referential statements, the I am statements that we get in John, but nowhere else. People have also pointed out that there are no exorcisms in John's gospel, but there are plenty of them in the first three gospels. So what are we to make of all these differences then, Jim? How do we counter the claim that the Jesus we meet in John's gospel is perhaps mediated through the mind of John? Well, let's, let's go through the differences one at a time. I mean, the exorcisms is, is easily dealt with. It seems to me that the north of Israel was a particularly dark place spiritually. You know, the, the land of Zebulun, um, that, that uh, quote um, that's given in, in the Christmas story, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. So it's not altogether surprising that we read of exorcisms in the synoptics because they focus on the Lord's ministry up north, while most of John's material is centered on Jerusalem. And that difference in focus explains the stylistic change as well. One of my friends uh, was talking to me about this recently. Uh, and he, as an illustration, told me about a, a man he knows who is this fiercely intelligent judge. And one of the hallmarks of his genius was his ability to speak to people at the right level. So he could talk to an audience of ordinary working men and women in the morning and then address a group of academics in the evening. So his style, choice of words, everything matched his audience perfectly. And that is the mark of a truly great communicator. And Jesus Christ is the supreme communicator. So it isn't in the least surprising that he uses memorable parables and pithy little sayings when he's addressing a rural audience up north, but he can also engage in profound intellectual combat with a religious elite in Jerusalem. I have to say, I also think that this, this, this question of the style difference between John and the other Gospels is overblown. Yes, there are no parables in John, but Jesus does create the same memorable word pictures. You know, I am the vine, I am the door. Uh, in fact, I, I think John 10 is best understood as three mini parables. Then there is the so-called Johannine thunderbolt that is found in Matthew 11. So I'm going to quote you the, some verses from Matthew 11. And um, you'd think that they must have come from John, but they're actually from Matthew. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I mean, that, that sounds so much like John, doesn't it? Now, having said all that, I, I think it's obvious that John had a particular theological vision to communicate. I mean, <laughs> anyone who's tried to preach John chapter 3 knows it's really difficult to work out 
when the Lord Jesus stops talking and John starts talking. But there are enough clues in scriptures, I think, to make that continuity of thought plausible. Uh, Matthew uh, uh, undoubtedly worked hard to record all the Lord's public teaching. But it was John who rested his head on Jesus' chest in the upper room. It was John who seemed to have relationships with some of the elite in Jerusalem. So I don't find it surprising that it's John who's utterly familiar with the Lord's arguments with the religious rulers. And I guess the final point I'd make here is that John is the only gospel to be written after the fall of Jerusalem. By the time John was writing his gospel, the temple had been raised to the ground. So that different perspective must have informed how he presents Christ to us. Anyway, the takeaway lesson from this entire conversation, Ollie, is I think we can be confident that all four Gospels give us access to Jesus' actual words. Evangelicals who argue for Ipsissima of Ox have ceded too much ground to biblical critics. As, as we'll see next week, the so-called contradictions in the Gospels are overblown. Now, I'm not waving them away with the airy hand of a fundamentalist, but I, I do really believe that harmonization is possible without having to perform any arbitrary intellectual gymnastics thanks jim uh, so yeah just tell us a little bit about what we're going to be looking at next week we're going to be focusing on the contradictions yeah, or the, on the, the supposed contradictions the supposed in contradictions in scripture that's right brilliant well we look forward to that jim before we come to an end you remember last week i mentioned that it's now possible to ask questions under our episodes on spotify oh yes um, and we have had a question from ryan under our third episode the quest for the historical jesus and ryan asks what conservative and or evangelical scholars would you recommend checking out? Uh, on the quest for the historical Jesus, uh, there's a book which J.P. Moreland has written and another by a guy called Craig Evans called Fabricating Jesus. Uh, I would also recommend two books by Peter Williams, one of them we have mentioned before, um, Can We Trust the Gospels? It's a very simple little book, but um, up, full of up-to-date scholarship. And then he has just published a second book called The Surprising Genius of Jesus, um, which makes some really important arguments with the fact that there has to be a single mind behind all of this. So th- th- those are some of the books I would recommend. Brilliant. Thanks, Jim, and thanks, Ryan, for your question. Do keep those questions coming, uh, either via our Spotify page, Instagram, or via our email address, theequipproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening this week. Uh, we'll see you all again next time. Mm-hmm.